Hi, this is Angie Fiedler-Sutton. And Jen Morris. And this is episode one of Stage Savvy. So, Jen, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I know. A lot of podcasts. Doesn't help that I am, you know, ride the bus in every day. So I have a good half hour from Olathe to downtown. So I have a good half hour to kill. And I used to work at the IRS last season. So you pretty much had to have something to keep yourself from going crazy. (laughs) Um, And so one of the podcasts, many podcasts I listen to is part of the reason I'm doing this and part of the reason we decided this first topic of ours yes. is there's this one on the How Stuff Works website called Stuff Mom Never Told You. Uh, they kind of uh, handle a female bent towards things and they did a podcast on women visual artists and afterwards um, I got to thinking and I could not think of any female playwrights off the top of my head outside of Wendy Wasserstein who I'm not a big fan of Heidi Chronicles and Paula Vogel, who the only thing I know from her was really um, uh, How I Learned to Drive, and I wasn't a real big fan of that play either. Yeah. So I got to thinking of women playwrights and how how they're not exactly well-known and how when you think of playwrights, you immediately start thinking of Neil Simon, William Shakespeare, that, right. all the men. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And so our first topic up is, is women playwrights. And also, if, odd case, speaking of Wendy Wasserstein, as we got to start researching this, uh, the Wendy Wasserstein Prize for Playwriting had a bit of cur- of a kerfluffle, yes. <laughs> as I like to call it. Basically, this is uh, late 2010 for anybody who's listening to this years and from now. They offer a $25,000 play uh, prize to a female playwright under the age of 32 who has not had a commercial Broadway production or an off-Broadway run on national media. And in 2010, they decided none of the entries were quality enough to warrant giving the prize. And that started all the blogs of buzz about, uh, for, you know, A, the, all those requirements that you had to be under that age. You had to have, a, you know, no other plays produced. Right. That, that was, they were basically arguing that that was a set of impossible tasks to warrant. And so they decided to, um, you know, part of the reason the age requirement was was Wendy Wasserstein did die fairly young, um, and it was started by a friend of hers. Uh, But, you know, a lot of the thing was whether or not it was against women playwrights, you know, but also it was the age requirement was also a big thing. So they decided to reopen the prize. Um, I could not find off uh, right now whether or not they actually re- re-awarded it yet, but they did re-op- decide to reopen right. the prize. It's only about five years old, if I remember right, and so they readily admitted they're still new. Um, they're still trying to figure out what their purpose is, so they were at least ready to admit they were wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that got me talking, thinking about playwrights, and um, so that's kind of where our first topic is, is women playwrights. Absolutely. It's very important. Like you said, a lot of people immediately go to the men playwrights when there are plenty of quality women playwrights out there that have quality works to be performed. Well, and especially um, as both of us are uh, actresses, or at least I have been actress, I realized it's been like almost 10 years now since I've been on stage. But, you know, we're always talking about how hard it is to find women roles. Well, it partially is because of women playwrights. I mean, yeah, men can, can can understand where women are coming from, but just by natural instinct, they're going to know more of how a man would talk and act and whatnot. Right. And so they typically, and this is very, very 
stereotypically, sure. will have more men in their plays. Right. And so, and the better roles will be going to the men. Right. You have the old lady and the ingenue. Yes, basically. Or the, yeah, or or the, the crazy, crazy lady. Yes, or the crazy lady. <laughs> so anyway, um, for our first one, I figured I'd go start. Uh, the first one I decided to do, um, I kind of felt guilty that I couldn't think of her immediately when I was starting to think about playwrights, and that is Lillian Hellman. Um, why I kind of felt guilty is because she's got a play that is being produced actually in St. Louis at this moment, which is what made me go, oh, yeah, I should have thought of her, uh, called The Children's Hour. Have you ever heard of The Children's Hour? I have. Okay. For those of you who haven't, it's about two kids, and this is written in the early 30s, I want to say. Yeah, the 1934. Um, two students at an all-girls school who accused two teachers of being lesbians. And the resulting fallout of that. It's never proven in the play whether or not the women are or aren't lesbians. But the whole point of the rumor itself makes one commit suicide. Sorry, spoiler alert. <laughs> it's a 1934 play. It's, I, it's been out. Yeah. Um, and the other one I uh, ends up getting fired, if I remember right. Yeah. Um, I've read. Uh, it's been like five or six years since I've read the play. So I um, very, very modern play now that I thought was fascinating. So... But yeah, Lillian Helmland was actually uh, born in 1905, and she was not married. She was more just stayed very, very close friends, quote unquote, yes. to Deschelle Hammett, I want to say is the pronounced, mm -hmm. who is the author of The Maltese Falcon, and apparently she was the inspiration of Nora Charles, of the Nick and Nora Charles uh, Thin Man series. Yes. So um, I was like, ooh, I didn't know that. Uh, but, you know, her most famous plays are The Children's Hour uh, and, of course, The Little Foxes, which yes. if you don't know Lillian Hillman, that's probably the first play you're going to recognize from her. And then Toys in the Attic is another one that I had never heard of, but they say is her better known one. But uh, she was labeled the second Ibsen or the American Strindberg. But she had a bit of a past. I mean, she was a curiosity, especially in 1939, of being a female playwright in 1939. But uh, she was a bit, old, bit of a lefty, as I'm sure comes as a major shock when you know the plot of the Children's Hour. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and she was brought up against the House of Un-American Activities Committee in 1952 because she was considered knowing communist uh, relations. However, whether or not what she exactly said in front of the House of Un-American Committee is a bit of a mystery because some sources give her this lovely quote, which I have to read, to her innocent people whom I knew many years ago in order to save myself is to me inhuman and indecent and dishonorable. I cannot and will not cut my conscience to fit this year's fashions, even though I long ago came to the conclusion that I was not a political person and could have no comfortable place in any political group. However... <laughs> That's a very interesting statement, too, as far as, you know, she's not a political person, but she made a very political statement right there in that room. However, David Frum calls the claim that Hellman gave uh, to wholly fictitious, mm. and that actually um, she also supposedly claimed that the committee room broke into applause after speech, which Frum also says fictional. David Frum actually wrote a biography of her and basically found out that she... Um, like a lot of celebrities had, uh, especially in the early early years of Hollywood, had kind of invented a lot about herself. And so whether or not she actually said that is is up in the air. But she was, you know, she did appear and she was blacklisted as a result of her appearing mm -hmm. and not being willing to give the statement. And she uh, basically didn't really get much until later in the later in her life. 
that's uh, pretty much her in a in a bucket, so to yes. speak. I mean, there's plenty of other good stuff. Um, she wrote a couple of screenplays, if I remember right. Yeah, she wrote the screenplay for the play version or for the Little Foxes movie version. But uh, she's got a bit of an interesting life. She, um, in her post life, has actually actually has been on The Simpsons. There you go. <laughs> Apparently, Lisa had a hallucination in the 15th episode of the 19th season, urge, and uh, Hellman urged her to take up smoking. And the same episode also jokingly and incorrectly identified Hellman as creator of Hellman's mayonnaise. Now, um, <laughs> before we go any further, a, a good 90% of my research was on Wikipedia. I will admit that. So if anybody's out there who's a Hellman you know, scholar, please, you know, this was just as much research as I could find in the, you know, on the internet that I could find, but I did try and go as often as I could to find other sources for this information. Apparently, uh, Chuck, and I'm going to really get this name wrong, Palinuik, the guy who wrote Fight Club, um, did also write a tell-all book about Lillian Hellman, um, but uh, basically reinvents her as a quote-unquote larger-than-life superhero and is also <laughs> in a couple other things. But uh, The Children's Hour is actually going to be staged in London in 2011, starring, of all people, Kira Knightley and Elizabeth Moss. All right. Now, that's a play I'd be interested in seeing. So that's pretty much, um, I mean, she's got some other stuff. She was a, a friend of Dorothy Parker. She apparently had fictionalized her adventures with Ernest Hemingway in her first memoir, An Unfinished Woman. So, you know, how much of her life is, is real is, is, you know, thing. And also, despite her statement that she says she said in front of the House Un-American Committee, she uh, was not a real big fan of free speech when it came to her own critics, she uh, actually, um, oh yeah, uh, Mary McCarthy basically on the Dick Cavett show said that, quote, every word that she writes is a lie, including and and the. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that's pretty much Lillian Hellman in a nutshell. That's oh. my first one. Oh, awesome. I'm going to take a little bit more contemporary approach and talk about Diana's son, uh, most commonly known for doing Stop Kiss. That's her big play. And she was kind of an interesting person as far as she grew up in Philadelphia and she comes from a Korean American family and just lived a typical suburban life. And then when she was in fourth grade, she decided she wanted to be a writer. She had won an essay contest and for the first time stood out amongst her brother. She was always known as her brother's sister, uh, kind of got washed under the rug, typical girl, nothing really exciting came out of her. And then you know, she really expressed herself in this essay and then she just shot out and everyone recognized her in fourth grade. And then when she was in high school, her senior year, they went into New York and they saw the famous Joseph Papp version of Hamlet where there was a female lead in Hamlet. And at that moment, it just transformed her, changed her life. She realized she wanted to do dramatic literature and that's where she went to NYU and, and, and studied dramatic literature there. She's done a plethora of things. Uh, again, most commonly known for Stop Kiss, also Satellites, R.A.W., Because I'm a Woman, uh, Boy and Fishes. Those are her top plays that she has done. And then she's also a co-executive producer and writer for Law and Order Criminal Intent. Interesting. And, yes. She, well, she has quite a large uh, screenwriting and television background. Uh, she does TV pilots for CBS. Uh, she uh, has a TV movie for Showtime and features for Fine Line Entertainment. So she's got quite a background as far as doing 
a lot of television and then some stage. So I find that interesting. She's kind of broadening her horizons with her writing skills and taking it in different directions. I, I kind of was interested uh, for doing her because it was a part of a production of Stop Kiss. And so it was very interesting. I saw you in that production. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, it was a great production down at the barn. And it was something that I was really drawn to that that literature. And I thought it was very interesting the way that she uh, used the characters and made it very realistic and it actually makes sense after I did the research why she works for Law and Order Criminal Intent after, you know, being involved with Stop Kiss because there is that very law, order, moral, ethics, that type, those type of themes uh, are a part of Stop Kiss. I mean, obviously, yeah. you know, it's more about relationships, but there was a, a strong theme of the ethics and the morals going behind, you know, what happened, uh, especially with the detective character. So I just found that really interesting, and that was, you know, a more contemporary playwright, an Asian-American playwright, mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, I think a lot of people tend to think of just straight American playwrights that, you know, there, there's quite a wide variety uh, of American playwrights here. You know, there there wasn't that much extra information because she's still living. She's still young. She's still got a lot going on. But one thing that I did find interesting is she is now a member of the Joseph Papp Theater, as one of the playwrights, which is where she saw Hamlet oh, when she was a senior in high school. So it's kind of interesting that she went back and took her skills and is making that company uh, better and, and, and being a part of that just because that's where it all started for her. And I think that's something that we as people in the theater, we always tend to go back where it all starts. Uh, we tend to um, honor the places that have, have started our dreams, started our hopes, started... Um, or interests, and so I find it interesting that I mean, even even playwrights will do that and go back. And sometimes we think of playwrights because writing is such a solitary act, we forget that it's actually collaborative as well um, because you're working with dialogue and people and directors and, and a whole company. And for my second one, I blame on another podcast. <laughs> you do um, listen to a lot of them. I listen to a lot of podcasts. <laughs> There's this lovely podcast called The Toblowski Files by Stephen Toblowski, and I will rant, rave about that in a future podcast. But uh, throughout this, these are all various stories that this character actor has done, and he's, a lot of them are from his earlier life. And he kept on talking about work, uh, you know, his, his uh, live-in girlfriend, Beth. And she decided to take this playwriting class and all this other stuff. And about fifth episode in... He finally mentions her last name, and it's Beth Henley that he's been talking about. And is like, I had no idea that Beth Henley knew, and Stephen Dabowski even knew each other. Um, for those of you who don't know, Beth Henley is most famous for Crimes of the Heart, uh, the lovely story of three crazy Southern women who uh, one is accused of killing her husband, I think it is. Yes. And it's, there's some... Um, when I saw it in L.A., um, part of my review mentioned you kind of get the feeling that To Kill a Mockingbird is also happening on the same street just further down because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it has a lot of the That's same true. themes in terms of African-American white relations, especially in the South, um, you know, abusive husbands, that kind of stuff. So um, Beth Henley was uh, born in 1978. Crimes of the Heart was actually her second play that she wrote. I mean, I she had written that. a couple of short uh, – she had written one, one act called uh, Am I Blue?, which apparently is is a very intriguing play, according to Stephen Toblowski. But uh, this was her second, her first major full length play that she had ever written. 
And um, it went on to win several awards, including the New York Drama Critics Award, a Pulitzer Prize for Drama. She also award, uh, received a Tony Award nomination for Best Play and an Academy Award nomination for her adapted screenplay version, which is Sissy Spacek. Uh, is it Farrah Fawcett, I think I want to say, is also in there? But um, if you uh, know her at all, her other big play is uh, the Miss Firecracker Contest, yes. um, which I've not read myself, but I've actually heard about. Um, I think my husband, Rich, did a version in high school of it, and basically about coming out, not in terms of a sexual manner, but back in, again, the old South of debutantes and how the young girl would, would come out at a certain age, and that kind of social connotation that that kind of thing because obviously the poor girl didn't have coming out parties the uh yeah it was only the the uh, richer ones but she's you know still writing she uh, in fact her um latest one is ridiculous ridiculous fraud as of wikipedia um she's also been in plays or been in movies she's actually was in a in swing shift of, as an actress and then she's just written a several other different ones but those are pretty much the main ones that she is familiar with and she's really popular because a lot of people she's one of those first ones that really worked within the southern dialect and accent she uh, is mm-hmm. pretty much according to one critic she uh, creates a southern accent in dramas and preserves quote regional voices on stage that it's one of the few times when you actually get, you know, the first times that the Southern accent was heard on stage, that it wasn't all very proper American, you know, that was almost lining on the British accent kind of thing. But yeah, and um, pretty much, no, like I said, she's still writing. She has a son now. Um, not with Stephen Tobolowsky. They did break up. <laughs> <laughs> um, she did a movie version of the Miss Firecracker Contest mm-hmm. uh, and then three others. Uh, movies as well as other plays including the debutante ball her most recent play is impossible marriage which debuted in 1998 according to uh, mississippi writers page website so that is beth henley yes and just a side note on that you know beth henley has done some amazing works i remember seeing crimes of the heart when i was in high school It, it was a very transformative piece as well as the Miss Firecracker contest. I know from high school that was a very popular monologue <laughs> uh, play for young girls. So something that definitely a lot of female actresses, especially younger female actresses, you know, the high school, college age, that's that's very popular works. Oh, definitely Crimes of Heart, because if I remember right, the uh, oldest is having her birthday and is whining. Well, not whining. That was my impression when I saw it in L.A., uh, that she is turning 30. Well, I'm going to talk a little bit about Eve Ensler. She's very popular, again, another contemporary. And it's also a different type of playwright in that she's known more for, um, obviously, vagina monologues. So a more monologue, one-woman type of production, uh, not necessarily a traditional play, as many of us you know, think of. And I kind of wanted to touch that a little bit with, you know, I think we see we saw a wave of that with, you, you think of Lily Tomlin or someone like that, where it's more one-woman or or individual monologues with a, a, you know, without interaction with people. And she was born back in the, in the 70s, and she said that she was sexually abused by her father when she was younger, and so hence maybe some of her later works. Uh, she's known as a big activist, and so I think that's kind of what, what's been a part of a lot of her works. Well, doesn't all the proceeds to the vagina monologue go to, like, 
abused women or something mm -hmm. like that, some charity that helps with abused women. Yep. The, the Vagina Monologues was written in 1996. That's when it was first produced, um, and it did win an Obie Award for that. And in 1998, two years later, she went on to create the V-Day program, which uh, V stands for Victory or Vagina, and that is benefiting women who have been abused, women who have uh, sexual pasts that have been negative as far as, you know, rape or something like that. And so she's taken that particular piece to really emphasize something that she's very passionate about. And she's been to other countries uh, to, to for women's advocacy as far as she's been, Afghanistan, I think, was one of her bigger ones. But she's also been to Uganda where female circumcision has, is still prevalent and is going in and, and trying to reach out to those women. So uh, she, she's taken women's issues and really expounded upon that. And actually one of her other plays that she's done, The Good Body, is all about different women talking about what they struggle with with their body, what's affected, you know, th their beauty, what's impacted how they see themselves. And so I, I find that interesting as she's picking subjects that are really moving as mm -hmm. far as what women would want to go to. And she does have a sense of humor. I don't, it sounds so, oh, this is a serious yes. issue. And no, but if anyone's ever seen the vagina monologues, it's, it's hilarious. And, and the good body as well. It, it, there's a lot of humor in there, even though you're talking about a very serious subject. Another play that she wrote, The Treatment, came out in 2006, and it was about the moral and psychological trauma of military conflict, which I, I thought was kind of interesting given, you know, she's been over to Afghanistan, and so kind of working on that. And that actually starred her adoptive son, Dylan McDermott, who is a very popular actor, yes. which... She was 23 when she adopted him at 15. So they're not very far apart in age at all. But that's uh, her son. And she's written six books as well as all the plays that she's written, uh, about nine plays. And, again, her books are focusing a lot on specific issues such as insecure at last, losing it in our secure, obsessed world. You know, going through different important issues, that's what's been important to her and one thing that she's also been doing is she's led a writing group since 1998 at Bedford Hills Correctional Facility for Women. And so she's been giving back her talents to people who need it, which I, I also found interesting. I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but there's also a group uh, of ladies here who work with the Lee Summit Correctional Facility for teenagers and mm -hmm. they do playwriting groups there I didn't uh, know that. to to help bring that out i've met with them before and it, it's it was very fun very interesting and it's amazing what playwriting could do to really transform someone who wouldn't have that opportunity otherwise and that was something else that i found really interesting she's won so many awards it would take 10 minutes if i named them all <laughs> off uh but you know just a couple of quick ones 1999 uh guggenheim uh, Fellowship Award for Playwriting, uh, the Barilla Care Award for Playwriting. Uh, so she's really been focused on as a true playwright, despite the unique style of playwriting that she's done, where it's more less interactive and more dialogue with the audience. Cool. Well, that is obviously nowhere near the playwrights that we found, but we also have a second topic. I had also briefly researched Agatha Christie, who wrote very uh, a lot of play versions of her books and also a couple of originals. She also wrote some original um, radio scripts. And in fact, there's a uh, group in, where is it? Well, the Agatha Christie Theater Company, whose whole purpose is to produce 
all the plays that Agatha Christie did and plays based on it. And they're on, uh, uh, in the United Kingdom. What a shock. <laughs> and then I was also going to briefly talk about the mystery of whether or not the playwright Jane Martin actually is a woman or not. It's a rumor that it's actually, because uh, there's been no visuals of her. Um, she's never made any appearances, even though she's like one the Pulitzer Prize and the American Theatre Critics Award that rumored that Actors Theatre of Louisville artistic director John Jory is actually Jane Martin. There's also a rumor that it's him and his wife and whether or not, you know, the whole thing. But she's the author of, primarily people would know her from Talking With. But those are just brief ones. And then you are also going to mention uh, Mary Zimmerman. Correct. Uh, Mary Zimmerman, who uh, was responsible for Arabian Nights that they did at the Rep here, who I, I wanted to touch on her just because she uses direction as a form of playwriting. She does a lot of adaptations. She's an opera as well, uh, where she'll take a traditional show and work it as a director to something refreshed, and that's what's, what's being used as her works that are written down, which is very common in comedy and improv, and I know it's something a lot of men use when they're writing comedic movies and whatnot. And so I was going to touch on that is for someone who's doing more classical plays on stage. That was kind of unique, I thought. Well, and then uh, for anybody out there who is a woman playwright, the Potluck and a local Kansas City. Well, actually, I don't, I don't think they limit it to local Kansas City people. But uh, Potluck Productions does pretty much annually a women's playwriting festival. It's typically in March. I don't think they did it this year because uh, or they're not going to be doing it next year. I couldn't quite tell from their website. But be, because they're housed in they're one of the just off Broadway people and since just off broadway is going through some needed repairs they're pretty much have put it off for right now but i got to catch it two i want to say two three years ago and that it it was astounding how much talent there is actually out there and there's a plenty of other women playwriting competitions out there um and then also as we were talking about this uh, we we're at the Barn Players production of Rent, and I got to thinking about musicals. And I couldn't think off the top of my head of any musicals written by women. And someone shamed me to remember that Betty Comden of Comden and Green um, wrote quite a few musicals for obvious reasons on the town and whatnot. And then um, spell, uh, 25th Annual Putnam County Spelling Bee, I think is mm-hmm. the official yes. <laughs> title. I can never remember the order of the words. Um, was written, was conceived by Rebecca, Rebecca Feldman with a book co written by Rachel Schinken. So that's okay. if you want to immediately think of a well-known musical that was done by a woman. Those yes. those were those. Well, we're going to take a break, and then we're going to come back for speaking of playwriting competitions. We're going to have a little, I wouldn't say a debate, because I think we both see both the pros and the cons. Yes. Um, but we're going to have a little discussion on the comparing uh, between old chestnuts versus new works. We'll be right back. Hi, you're listening to Stage Savvy. This is Tiffany Garrison Schweiger, Artistic Director of She and Her Productions. Okay, new versus old. Uh, You want to start? (laughs) Sure, absolutely. Well, this is something that, you know, I think every theater goer can appreciate this, whether you are active on stage, behind stage, or not. This is something that if you go to theater, this is something that comes up, there's we're so lucky here in Kansas City where there's so many different options of plays to go see, uh, different companies to go see. And I know sometimes as a theater goer myself, I sit there and I have to think about, all right, here's an old chestnut. Here's here's a, a well-known play, something that is, you know, one of those must-see plays, or there's an opportunity to see something brand new, something fresh, something, you know, whether 
I know the fish tank is especially known for a lot of uh, fresh works, especially, you know, we were talking about playwrights earlier. There's a lot of playwriting contests out there. Uh, you know, the barn has one. They just recently had their 6 by 10 You could go see new works there. Um, as well as, you know, on a bigger scale, the rep does a lot of workshop works, you know, like uh, A Christmas Story. That's new works that they're bringing here, even though it's a well, movie would be The Chestnut, but I think the actual work itself being yeah, a new it was, work. It was a world premiere when it yes. was here. That's why they, they ended up switching out from Christmas Carol to that last yes. year was yes. because it was a world premiere. And, um, you know, that's something I have to look at. You know, let's say there's a there's a night, there's two shows going on. Am I going to select a Chestnut or am I going to select a new work? And I think there are several pros and cons to going and seeing either one. I know for myself, sometimes it's more tempting to go see an old Chestnut, a traditional show something that um, has received good reviews something that has been around because it's one of those that as a theater person I feel obligated I haven't seen that yet so I need to go see that yeah I mean it's my big argument for why um, companies should continue to produce plays that are well known like the odd couple or Annie is because there's always a new audience I have never actually seen a live production of Annie I've seen the movie but I've never seen a live production not necessarily would want to sure. <laughs> love the movie, but you know, that, that can get old, but you know, there are always going to be people out there that have never seen the odd couple that right. have never seen Camelot. I'd love to see a new version of Camelot yeah. done here locally. You know, I, I saw it in college, but haven't seen it since, but the fact that, you know, so that's, you know, that's also a very good reason to do old chestnuts is because it's a hor historical thing when um when i was in la we we watched a number of different works and one of them was how to succeed in business without really trying not exactly a most updated story if you're familiar at all with the movie <laughs> uh, very very um but i think part of the reason they decided to do it was because in the wake of mad men the the tv show i haven't seen it but from what i understand the concept is basically the same it's all about you know the 50s advertising world and how men were men and women were few and it was all that and so i think that's part of what made them choose it and they also said in their program that the reason they picked it is because of the historical aspect of this show the fact that this was produced during a certain time and that there is a certain reason for why it exists and so that was why they wanted to do this and so that's my argument for why you know and, and also some new works um one of the things I got to see was um, Bengal Tiger at the Baghdad Zoo, which is world premiere, was in L.A. It's going to be going to Broadway, starring Robin Williams, of all people. I'm still wrapping my head around that. But, uh, you know, that was a very new piece and uh, about the Iraq War, but it wasn't about the Iraq War. It was really, it was one of those, I, I, going in, I was really afraid I was going to be hammered over the head with, Iraq War's bad, and we should be out of there. And you know how <laughs> those message plays sure. typically do that. And not that I'm for the Iraq War or anything like that, but, you know, it, it you don't go I don't like going to message plays because sure. it's so you feel so guilty coming out of it. And this was nowhere near a message play. It just happened to take place during the Iraq war. Sure. So that I felt that was a good way to kind of send the message but not but still still be there. So I was very glad that I was able to see this new work. However, I would not necessarily see, want to see a community theater production of that work because it needs to be a professional Sure. Version. Not to say community theaters aren't at the level of professionals, but it needs to be someone who is paid to work on these lines and to work on these things on, a, you know, sure. eight, seven, five days a week. Sure. And, and touching base on that, you usually typically see a new work done at a professional theater that's trying to go somewhere as mm -hmm. opposed to, well, like a playwright. 
Well, I mean, uh, the unicorn contest. is is very big yes, at, at producing newer newer stuff that that Cynthia Levin goes to uh, New York to see specifically to try and get be the Midwest's first showing of these plays. Absolutely, and I know she makes regular trips there. And so, yeah, definitely, we you know we need to have that new voice and those new experiences because otherwise we're going to be stuck with Shakespeare all of our lives. But there's nothing wrong with Shakespeare on the other on the other side. Sure, so. and I. I I appreciate the newer works from the standpoint of it gives us a fresh perspective. I think sometimes we're like, all right, we've seen that play, we've seen that play, we've seen that play. Oh, this is new, and it's it's a new experience, and uh, it's something we can talk about and converse about and, and really delve into, whereas a lot of the arguments for old shows, like, yep, that was nice. Well, now I've seen it, you know? Well, or, and, and with old shows, especially, and something – Casey stage staff has noticed is for for whatever reason it seems like it's the same show being produced by five different companies yes a number of years ago we create a state Casey stage created what we call the Annie award and it's actually not named after Annie but it's Annie get your gun because mm-hmm. there were three productions of Annie get your gun that year and every year we've just we when we do our top rated shows um, award in February I've started now adding in the Annie Award, basically yeah. the most produced show of the year. And thankfully, the last couple of years, it's only been like three or four, which when we have over 200 organizations registered with us is yeah. a drop in the bucket. But at the same time, when you see, you know, that three different companies are doing rent, for example, right. that was that was probably going to be the big top rated or the, the most produced show this year because uh, KCK did it. Uh, the pageant productions did it, and then the barn players did it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think there was a high school and that the, did the high school version as well. Yeah, and so you know, great that you want to be the first people in the group to to do it, but at the same time, be aware of what the other companies are doing, and maybe think of okay, well, let's try the, let's put that one on hold and do it next year instead. Yeah, it's great to be the first person to put on that production, but at the same time, if you know, it's hard to advertise your company your, your production right. if two other groups are done it um although i've got to admit on the opposite side of things of that it, it kind of works in your favor because the only way i was able to get to see evil dead was in its third incarnation it was here in topeka did it first and then pageant productions did it and then eubanks or sorry um what egads theater yeah. is what they're calling themselves now and i didn't have a chance to go see it when it was in topeka and i didn't have a chance to go see it when pageant did it thankfully i did manage to f- get a chance to see it when EGAD's theater did it and so I was all Bruce Campbell-ified to to go see this production and thankfully I was able to because but you know had they waited and done it next year I would have still been just as eager to see it next year that's true so well and and with some of those shows like Evil Dead or Rent they're such cult classic Mm -hmm. shows that there are a group that I'm sure would travel theater to theater to see it three times I've heard especially with Evil Dead that there is actually a group of deadites, as they call themselves, as <laughs> I, you know, that do basically travel the country from production to production to watch Evil Dead, and it, almost in a Rocky Horror Picture Show esque kind of way, and that's an interesting thing to to consider when you're deciding to put on a show. That's true. So um, I do know that the there is a lot of you know a couple of different programs specifically instated for new play development uh nea for example has a hundred thousand dollar grant for new play development projects it started in 2008 they pick five theaters that each get twenty thousand dollars to support the early stages of development and to go back to our first topic four of the five of 2010 were written by women 
Oh, well, there you go. So, and then there is a new national new play network uh, that's all about new productions, and and the whole point is to develop new theater and stuff like that. And all of these things that I keep mentioning uh, will be in our show notes, by the way. So, if you're interested in learning more about any of these, just go to uh, the Stage Savvy blog, which I'll mention in our tale, and you know we'll have links out to all these various things. With with regards to theaters producing it, as someone who's Look, been on the board side of things and have thought about starting my own theater whether or not to do new theater or old theater i think you don't have to necessarily do one or the other you can do both although there yes. are you know you've got to decide what your mission is if your That's mission true. is to make sure you have enough money to pay for the next one well maybe you need to work on old chestnuts because for better or for worse pr- promoting stuff that people know is a lot easier and you're a lot likely to get, more likely to get those butts and seats for doing something that people know. On the other hand, if you are wanting to dedicate yourselves to new works like the unicorn does, then you know be aware that you're going to have to have an extra hard time promoting that because, for better or for worse, in theater people aren't you know quote unquote average audience members, whatever that may be, yeah. um, has a harder time accepting new works for whatever reason which i find extremely odd considering we're always about new movies and new tv shows right but somehow when it comes to theater we're suddenly turning ourselves off or at least the stereotype goes and so you you know you have to have your marketing and that's where our podcast ends for some reason our audio ran out at that point so i'm going to go to a quick break and then i'm going to come back and sum things up so stick around for just a little bit more You've been listening to Stage Savvy. My name is Richard Buswell with Casey Stage Magazine. Actor tested, director approved. Thank you for listening to the first episode of Stage Savvy, hosted by myself, Angie Fiedler Sutton, and Jen Morris. We hope you enjoyed it and would love to hear your feedback. You can send us comments in several different ways. You can comment on the blog posting for this podcast over at angiefsutton.wordpress.com, which is also where you'll find the show notes for this podcast, including links of some of the things we talked about this episode. You can also email me at afeedler, A-F as in food, I-E-D as in dog, L-E-R, at kcstage.com, or you can also leave us a voicemail at 816-23-STAGE. Please indicate you're calling about the podcast, as that's the phone number for Casey Stage as well, and a heads up if you do leave us a voicemail that it might end up in a future podcast. We'd love to thank KKFI FM 90.1 for letting us record this podcast in their lovely studios, as well as Jason Bauer, who wrote the great theme music, a variation of I Got Rhythm. Since this is an audio podcast, we also decided that we'd end each podcast with a song, usually written and or performed by a local musician. If you're a musician and would like us to highlight something you've written, just send us a note, again, either by email, afeedler, F as in food, I-E, D as in dog, L-E-R, at kcstage.com, or by calling 816-23-STAGE and mentioning the podcast. Just a note that you will have to have rights to the song for us to perform it. We can't afford ASCAP licenses, so make sure it's something you have created or have the rights to. This episode ends with Sigh No More, a song also written by Jason Bauer for the Alcott Arts Center's production of Shakespeare in the Parking Lot 4, Much Ado About Nothing, which performed in the summer of 2010. We hope to have the next episode next month. So, without further ado, here is Jason Bauer with Sigh No More.
Attribution non commercial share alike license. For more information, visit Creative Commons. Thank you very much.